So I want to talk about dreams. Dreams are these uh, fantastical, sometimes kind of longings of our heart or maybe kind of fears that we've had that kind of somehow come out. Our brain, heart kind of has these things. Um, two weeks ago, it was totally not fair. Before school even started, our family got sick. Because we're going to get sick like in two weeks now that school started, right? It's just going to happen. But we all got colds, and so for a few days, I was on NyQuil. Does anybody else here have like crazy NyQuil dreams? Like, I don't know what happens, but I wake up like, what? I mean, just every kind of thing that could happen happens. One recent dream, I remember that I had. I was in school. And uh, my teacher uh, did not want to drive me home from school, but uh, was going to. But so we got in her 15-passenger van, uh, me, my son, and then my daughter, who's nine, um, she decides that she's going to drive. She's nine. In the dream, it's like, yeah, that's okay. Um, it's snowing out also, and so she's driving. She's doing okay with the turns, but totally missing all the stop signs. So she decides eventually in my dream, like, this is probably not the best idea. She gets out, um, and then all of a sudden we look back, and there's like all these, these four um, St. Bernard puppies that are following her. And then, you know, for no reason, the dream changes into being a food delivery service. We're delivering food now to our home. we got to get it there, get all the food up the stairs. So we get to my house, and we're unloading all of these things. And the very last thing is this giant tower of mashed potatoes and all of a sudden the dream decides oh yeah the St. Bernard puppies and my daughter and they come back into the picture right so my daughter's holding these two puppies and two other puppies are going right for the mashed potatoes and this is like this is the entire dream now is me saving the mashed potatoes and one puppy dives into the mashed potatoes I grab one and I save the top of the mashed potatoes and the dream ends I don't know. <laughs> Thank you for clapping for that. <laughs> we're, we're calling this sermon series we started last week, Dream Bigger. I, I want you to have fantastical, crazy, awesome dreams for, for your own life, your Christian walk, your spirituality, for our church, for our community around us, to call you out, challenge you, to have these big dreams, to ask God to do the big, the, the miraculous here. And, and last week, I opened this up by just trying to look at you each kind of square in the eye directly, kind of speaking to each individual here, that I want you to have this huge dream for your own relationship with Christ. That's where I even started. I, I started last week talking about that I want you individually to have this thriving, healthy, joyful relationship with Jesus. If you haven't read Psalm 16 lately, just go there this week. He is just so in love with the Lord God. He, he's saying, there's nothing else good in my life. And verse 4, he contrasts that and says, those that run after other gods and idols, their, their sorrows will multiply. And I challenged you last week, too, that look at your life carefully in sin habits, little to big, and just... Begin to radically cut those out. If you want a healthy, joyful, happy relationship with Jesus, cut out sin. 
and I challenge you about balance, leadership, and then committing to this community. But today, this morning, I want to think about us collectively, about the church. Give this challenge or kind of have this big dream that I think we, we read about in Scripture of what we really could be. Now, I think that if everybody here individually in your family, in your community, you are, you are pursuing this you know, thriving, healthy, joyful relationship with Jesus, it's going to change Sunday morning, right? It's going to change our marriages, our families, our communities. It'll have an effect. But what if we were a church that dreamed big all the time? I know that as a church over the last five, ten years, we've gone through some hard stuff. I mean, take, take a global pandemic and COVID and fears and all of those things. But I want us to dream again. <laughs> to think about our church being healthy, thriving, full of people just coming on a Sunday morning, coming to Bible study that are authentic, real with their hurts and with their, their faith. I mean, that, that we have a church that has like all kinds of different people here from uh, Nepali to Hispanic to black to white. I mean, just that we are, we are in our communities, whether you're South Des Moines or Carlisle around here, we are transforming those schools and workplaces, neighborhoods, that our, our faith, our purpose as a church to be the light of Christ is shown out that, that it is just unignorable how much we are loved with Jesus all to glorify God. Challenging, challenging you men out there, which I did last week, to step up in your leadership, in your homes, in your families, to be humbled by the good news of Jesus, to have women just in love with their Savior, this, this vibrant worship on a Sunday morning full of emotion and true words from the Bible, like that, that my preaching would stir your soul every Sunday, that new people would be welcome and encouraged, that this would just kind of be this little taste of heaven on earth. I mean, practical things like our, our sanctuary just overflowing with people. I mean, people just praying and life and energy and multiple services. Like, our, our coffee gets so good. I know, I'm dreaming big, right? Our coffee gets so good that there's like lines out the door for our coffee. I've been dreaming lately, okay? <laughs> I'm excited. I'm pumped up this morning to talk about this. And I, I kind of narrowed it down to five things. So first off, I want us to be a church that is ready for revival. Uh, take your Bibles out, um, your phone, tablet, or you got, and turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. We'll have uh, some of the scripture on the screens today, but I want you to have a Bible in front of you also. All throughout the Bible, we find this idea of revival. God wakes people up. He takes the dead. He resurrects them physically, but even spiritually, he wakes them up to his glory, his story, his desires, his will, and it then changes people, families, communities, whole nations even. 
One such story we find is in the book of 2 Kings. If you're not familiar with this part of the Old Testament, from 1 Kings to 2 Kings, you have this story of this pendulum swing back and forth, back and forth of good king, bad king. Maybe a bad king, good king. Maybe two good kings, three bad kings. It's telling the story of this, well, two nations, Israel, Judah, that were supposed to follow after God. And these kings are not labeled good and bad for um, their leadership or how many countries they conquered, but did they follow God? Did they lead other people in God? And those who were called evil led them into terrible, awful things, child sacrifices, worship of demons. And so in 2 Kings 22, a new king comes onto the scene, Josiah. He is eight years old. Now this is just like God, right? To take a kid to bring revival to a nation. Well, about ten years into his kingship, he decides that he's going to clean some things up. He wants to kind of get the temple back up and rolling. I'm going to recap chapter 22 for you, and we'll read 23 a little bit. But he, he tells his secretary, I want you to go over to the temple, uh, uh, go look for the money that's been collected. I want you to clean it out. Uh, go get builders, workers, uh, repair things, you know, clean out, kind of just kind of make it ready for temple worship. And while they are doing this, they come across a... Um, a, a book that they realize is, they call it the book of the law. We've come to understand that this is Deuteronomy. Just imagine not having part of the Bible, and all of a sudden it is found, these words from God that talk about how you should live, how you should not live, and consequences then for doing that. They bring this straight to the king, and they read it to the king, and the king is devastated. He's seeing the just moral depravity around him, and he realizes that they have not been following this book that's been lost in this place. And so he, he like pulls his hair, he puts on sackcloth and tears his clothes and weeps and seeks out God. And he leads the people in doing this. Whenever you see revival, this thing happening in, in the Word of God or in just contemporary life right now, it's, it's these elements, right? There's um, a message from God. There is confession, repentance, and there's some sort of worship and prayer that goes in with that. But jump with me to verse 1 of chapter 23. Then the king, this is Josiah, sent in all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets and the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that, he had, that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments his testimonies, his statutes, with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. He says, this must change. Not just with me, the leader, but with our entire 
city and our entire nation. Not just our temple worship, but everything must change. He makes this commitment, this covenant to God. We will change. All the people say, yes, we will do that. And so from then on in this chapter, he begins to just go through the city. He cleans out temples of other false gods. He gets rid of fake priests. He gets rid of cult prostitutes. He breaks down places of child sacrifice. It keeps mentioning to all these past kings like, like Solomon and Manasseh, all these ones that like put these things in place, these terrible things. And Josiah is so bold to say, even though they did that before, we are not going to do this now. And he even goes beyond Jerusalem to the other, other cities and parts of his land to kind of clean out the land from this terrible stuff. Pick it up with me again in verse 19 of chapter 23. And Josiah removed all the shrines, also the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God. As it is written in this book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges. This is hundreds of years ago who judged Israel. Or during all the days of the kings of Israel, of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums, the necromancers, and the household gods, and the idols, and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. And this last verse, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. According to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. This story of Josiah and the nation of Judah is one of revival. When Josiah hears the word of the Lord, he responds immediately. He repents, he confesses, and then he leads his people, his nation, to do the same. And he sets up further people, further children and generations to thrive by destroying all these strongholds. Again, revival comes through these ways of prayer and repentance. My hope, my prayer, my my challenge to you is that you would be ready for revival when, if the Holy Spirit were to work in that way. You know, revival always sounds fun. It sounds like, yeah, we, we want that, and we do. But revival comes with change. Saying no to things we love. And I pray that we are ready for that. I, I, I challenge you to pray fervently for that. That we would see amazing, miraculous things. That marriages would be saved. That people who have been set against Christ would come to even just one little inch open to believe in him, that we would come on Sunday morning just find this authentic worship and prayer. And here's, here's just one way I think we will see this. Baptisms. 
I, I went back, looked at some, some, some numbers, right? 2020, uh, we, we did zero baptisms. There are reasons for that, right? We were kind of just afraid of being around people and being in the same water. And so 2021, we, we opened up the tank again. Uh, we did five baptisms. It's awesome. That's huge. So far this year, 2022, we've done six baptisms. But this year ain't over yet, right? I would love to see God work in an amazing way that by the end of the year we've got quadruple from last year. We've got 20 baptisms. And then next year, double that. We've got 40 baptisms to celebrate. How amazing and awesome would that be if God worked in that way that every single Sunday we have people banging on the door to be baptized. So number two, we're going to look again at a revival in the New Testament. But it's in Acts chapter 2 if you want to turn there. But my next kind of big dream, big, big challenge for what our church could be is that I want to see a church that is overflowing with Christians and nuns. Now hear me correctly. I'm saying nuns, N-O-E-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. Like, I'm not looking for, like, sound of music, nuns, habits, rulers, like, none, non-Christian, okay? I, I would love to see if Revival Sparks, if we are here, this packed-out sanctuary that, you know, we can't even walk through the foyer, that it's not just on these holidays of Easter or December, Christmas, but so much joy overflowing in here that people all over the community are like, I, I need to see what is going on here. There's a great story of revival that happened in the 1700s. Uh, George Whitfield used to come from England over to New England to preach. and He was an outdoor revivalist preacher, amazing. And Benjamin Franklin became interested in him and would go and see him. And, and Benjamin Franklin was, was known for kind of this agnostic, not a strong believer by any means. And people would ask him, Benjamin Franklin, you don't, you don't believe what he's saying, right? You don't, why are you going to see him? And he would say, no, I don't believe what he's saying, but he sure believes what he is saying. And there are people flocking to him. I want that to be the message that we hear, that people are flocking to churches to hear the good news because it is shaping, transforming lives. That there are Christians and nuns, non-Christians here represented. So Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the story of the early church. Jesus has done his ministry. He's been on earth for three years. He died on the cross, resurrected. Forty days he um, encouraged. He spent time with his disciples. And then he went up into heaven and left this motley crew to continue on what he started. And he said, don't worry, you will be equipped was something incredibly powerful. So they're all kind of together, these disciples, they're in this room, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. It's not just like um, they, they feel like they have heartburn or something, like, oh, that's kind of weird, something inside me now. No, this is crazy story where they're together, all of a sudden this loud, rushing wind begins to, Blow, it is loud, and all of a sudden they all have 
tongues of fire over their heads, they, they, they realize something is happening spiritually to them, and they begin to all speak in different languages. And they're in Jerusalem, there's this giant festival going on, and this crowd begins to uh, come around this house, and, and, and it says, look at me in chapter 2, verse 9, it says all of these people around, there's Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. And this is like the opposite of the Tower of Babel in Genesis, right? They're all spread out. They're all coming back together now. And they say, they say in verse 11, we hear them telling us in our own tongues the mighty works of God. God is sparking revival. He's doing something. And the bumbling kind of foot-for-a-mouth guy, Peter, gets up and preaches the most amazing sermon he's ever preached. And look what happens. Jump down to verse 40. And with many other words, Peter, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I mean, this is the first megachurch, 3,000 souls right there. And they devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers... And then jump to verse 46 and 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The early church was this amazing amalgamation of cultures and diversity and languages of apostles, those who had followed Jesus, and brand new Holy Spirit-filled believers. And they're meeting together every single day, 3,000, God's adding to that every single day, these non-Christians, Christians, there's this mixture here. I, I would love to see that at our church, that we have, yes, people who know Jesus, are committed, and we have those that are questioning, that are this new category that people are calling the, the nuns. There's this thing called Pew Research that has been studying this phenomenon of nuns. It says currently about 3 in 10 U.S. adults are religious nuns. People who describe themselves as atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular when asked about their religious identity. Self-identified Christians make it about 63%. So right now, there's this kind of ratio of 5 to 1. And it is, that gap has been growing of less Christians, more nuns in the past 5, 6 plus years. And let's be a church that he invites people into our homes. <laughs> Labor Day is coming up for, for barbecues, to Bible studies, and we're going to have a trick-or-treat festival this next fall. 
here to church, make them feel welcome. They don't want to leave. <laughs> the revival would spark even here. Number three, I want to see tons of toddlers and teenagers here at our church. From kids to adolescents to babies, smelly middle schoolers, Gen Zers, that next generation, whatever that one's called. I mean, just tons of toddlers to teenagers. I mean, so many dirty diapers that it's like coming into the sanctuary. We can smell it. So many like teenagers with hormones that it's like we can, we can sense that. <laughs> One of the churches I visited this last summer, the sister church of ours down in Indianola, Indianola Community Church, another free church. I was just amazed by just walking around the hallways even in the sanctuary, it was just, it was palpable. Like, I could not even walk without running into middle schoolers and high schoolers. There were so many teenagers there. Pastor John Dewey is a friend of mine. He was even talking to the teenagers. He's kind of pointing them out, talking to them in his service. We need to make this a place where we value our kids, it's one of our values even, and to actually do that, we value family discipleship. But turn with me to Psalm 78 to read about our command, our, our need, our desire from God to do this. Psalm 78, verse 2, it starts by saying this, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Over and over we find this in the word of God that parents, the church coming alongside them is to disciple that next generation. We see this multi-generational thing here that they are commanded to teach their children that then the next generation might know and know what? It's, it's the gospel message, right? In verse 7, the hope in God, not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. The good news of Jesus, that God is love and loved us so much that while we were sinners, had nothing to do with him, wanted nothing to do with him, that God loved us and saved us Jesus. We need to be the ones that are teaching our kids that not just that little half an hour on a Sunday morning or an hour on Wednesday night, but encouraging you guys to pray for our kids, encouraging you guys to disciple at home. I've got kids in kindergarten and fourth grade and fifth grade this next year. 
and, and I'm becoming more and more concerned for my kids, um, future kids' generations as I, especially this last summer, was able just to kind of listen and kind of be a fly on the wall to our culture. Um, we, uh, we did a thing this last week where we um, had an elementary school, uh, Studebaker actually, um, come here, use our sanctuary with our teachers and educators and, and do some, um, uh, some exercises, kind of encouragement before the school started. It was a great kind of partnership because a lot of those kids live right around here. Afterwards, uh, we were kind of cleaning up. We found a whiteboard they had used of all these kind of encouraging good things that were on there, um, being positive, you know, stop bullying. Uh, one of the phrases that I saw on there that kind of struck my eye was this, maybe you've heard this, um, speak your truth and be honest. I've heard that a lot recently. I'm sure you've heard this in some ways, this idea that, you know, we, yeah, we should be honest. We should um, speak our feelings and, and not just push things down. But there's this danger in that. But your truth is different from my truth. Truth is just, you know, whatever we want it to be. And uh, as long as you are true to yourself and speak it out loud, whether it's mean or not, that's okay. You want to make up your own story, and that's, that's the end of that, I think. And so I'm, I'm worried, I'm concerned for our kids, the next generation, what they're hearing about gender dysphoria, even marriages. I, I was talking to someone this last week, and they look at marriage numbers in divorce every year and seeing that climb, 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 especially coming out of 2020, 2021 and the global pandemic. I, I kind of counted up our kids, kids to high school. It's like about 115. <laughs> and there's no way that they're all here today because that would be crazy. But just think about that. And kids are great at inviting their friends, too. <laughs> if we had 115-plus kids coming to church to doing Bible studies, then we would need more volunteers, too. Number four, I want us to be a church of all peoples. We find this phrase, all peoples, in the book of Revelation. Turn with me there. The very last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 7. It's this picture then of where the church is going. Acts 2, it starts and it ends in Revelation, in heaven, of what we will look like. Our worship, our community with God. And this is the picture we get. One picture in Revelation of, of heaven. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10 after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I want us to be a church that looks like that, that is all peoples, is made up of that. That phrase, it's a newer phrase that our denomination is using. There's this 
idea that they have this all people's initiative. They state the National Coalition of Multi-Ethnic, Multicultural Leaders Committed to Disciple-Making, Gospel Impact Community Transformation. I have been surprised by the amount of diversity that we actually do have here in Iowa, in Des Moines, Southside Des Moines, in Carlisle, this area here. I love visiting other countries and mission trips, but I find right next door to us we have a lot of diversity. When I was on sabbatical this past summer, um, I went to two churches that didn't speak English. Um, I went to a Spanish church just down the road from us. Um, they, man, their worship was awesome. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, like an hour of worship. Um, and then they were kind enough to like give me a translator to during the sermon uh, for me to understand. And they were so proud to show me their flags, one of the countries they were from. Um, the next week, I have a friend I've made here in town, Praveen, who is Nepalese. And he is a Nepalese church here in town. All of his people are from Nepal. And I texted him, I said, you know, Praveen, I'd love to come visit your church sometime and just worship with you. He said, great, well, come on this Sunday. And so I show up, and Praveen is so excited I'm there. He's like, introduce me to people. They're so excited I am there. Uh, he introduced me to his wife, and um, we, we go sit up front, and he says, let me pray for you. I'll be, I'll be translating this morning. I'm thinking, okay, great. He's going to translate the sermon for me. And he begins to pray with me front row, and he's praying, God, I, I'm just so thankful that Pastor Kevin is here today. Preach through him today. Give him the words this morning in his sermon to preach to us. And I usually close my eyes, you know, when I'm preaching, like, I'm praying, and I, like, open my eyes, like, is this a joke? What is, what is happening right now? Like, I didn't prep any kind of sermon. I'd love to know, actually, like, after service, like, if this was you in that situation, what would you do? So after he prays, I say, Praveen, I'm so sorry we misunderstood. I didn't prepare a sermon. I just thought I was coming to worship with you. And he says, oh, no, no problem. It's okay. Um, you know, we, we have some non-Christians here. So if you could just give up and give like a little evangelistic message, that'd be great. And I'll do the rest. Great. Okay. <laughs> um, I think I had, is the video, I've got a video up here of their worship. Um, we'll see that, yeah, this is, this is here in Des Moines, Southside Des Moines. Um, every song is in Nepali. I don't understand anything. But while they're doing worship, I kind of start praying, thinking, okay, yeah, maybe I could do this. I've got some stuff on my phone. So I tell Praveen, okay, I'll do it. I'll preach for you. And so I, I pulled up a passage on the prodigal son, preached. And the reason why I was there, I found it afterwards, God had a plan for this. As I'm coming off the stage, somebody meets me and says, that story of the prodigal son was exactly my story. And all of a sudden, we're just like, somebody takes us and goes us back, leads us all these leaders and this guy back to this room. They serve us this Nepalese chai tea. And they're all speaking Nepali. And finally, Praveen says, this guy you talked to for service, it's his first time here at church, him and his wife. And they have been into all kinds of stuff, and they want to come back to Christ today. Would you lead them to pray to receive Christ? It's like, okay, yeah. Uh, okay, God, that's why I was there that morning. <laughs> so we lay hands on them, 
they receive Christ. Amen. Praise God. As I look at our community, I mean, down the road, we've got a new Hindu community center. We've got tons of grocery stores, Filipino, Asian, Spanish-speaking, Nepali. This is one of my favorite stats. You know, I've counted in Carlisle, South Des Moines, there's 18 Mexican restaurants. (laughs) My goal is to go to every single one of them. But there's a reason for that, because the nations are coming to us. And I... Maybe that means that our outreach changes. Maybe that means that we, we do some, you know, different things with different culture churches. Or maybe someday we have a, a Spanish Nepali church at our church. Finally, last point. I want to be a church where everyone gives generously. Now, I could mean this a couple of ways, right, that we... Have everyone giving generously in, in material things. And I saw you guys do that this summer with Freedom for Youth and Ruth Harbor. Generous in your, your serving, absolutely, in our children's ministry, our youth ministry, outdoors worship. Uh, generous in your, your prayer life, absolutely. But I want to challenge us financially. I know, this is, whew, this is the big topic, right? Money, church, Jesus. But if I'm dreaming big, if I'm thinking about what our church truly needs, this has not been an easy thing for us. It's been a hard thing for us to give generously. I've got two passages here that I'll read together, one from Proverbs, one from 2 Corinthians. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. You will be enriched in every way to be generous, in every way from 2 Corinthians 9, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Proverbs 3 encourages us to honor God with our finances, and with everything, with our money. Now, it uses the language of that day, right, with vats and barns and first fruits, but the principles here are are we are to give to God. We are to honor God with our wealth. We are to give to Him our best, our first fruits. And there's this general thought, too, that He is going to bless us. Now, it, it may not be, it probably won't be this, like, you give 10 bucks in the offering plate next week, ta-da, you'll receive $20, right? It's not some sort of like magical genie uh, vending machine, but God will bless your generosity in ways you probably won't understand or see for a while. But then in that 2 Corinthians passage also, we learn that God is even the one who enriches us. He's the one who makes us rich, to be generous. And he calls us to be generous. And one of the coolest things from that 2 Corinthians 9-11 verse is that all of that will produce thanksgiving to God. Your giving, your serving, your being generous can help others to praise God. I mean, really when we kind of lay all this out, it, it, it makes it almost a no-brainer to give to God, right? That, that he calls us to do it. He commands us to do it. He says, I'm going to enrich you to do it. I want you to be generous. I'm going to bless you for doing it. And then when you do that, other people will praise God because of that. 
like I said, we've, we've, we haven't done great at this in our church. We have some people who give a lot, praise God. We have many people that give some, and a lot of people who give none. For our own personal relationship with Christ, your own personal with Christ, I pray that you would give generously, that you wouldn't be so tight-fisted with your money that you would give it to God. For the sake of the church, we might do more ministry, help others to praise God, that you would give generously. And I always like to give my family as an example to lead well in this. This is what we do as a family. This is just my leading in my family. For years now, we, we, we tithe. We give 10% of my gross income, which is always kind of a strange thing because I get paid by the church and I give some of it back to the church. So if you worry about giving the church, that's what I do. But it's become such of this automatic, just habit, natural, that if there was anything in our life that just, you know, hardship or um, financial drought, we would not stop doing that. That will always be in our budget because we believe so firmly in that, that God will provide and bless and enrich us. I wanted to show you guys this. Uh, when I went to the, the Nepalese church, they actually presented this to me. Uh, it's like you can't like not preach and they give you like a really cool scarf, right? <laughs> but I got to wear this actually when I, when I preached. And it kind of represents to me the work that God is doing all over Des Moines, Carlisle, and amazing in ways. He, he used me to bless somebody else. And I pray, I hope, I send this challenge out that you would begin to pray for these things at our church. Revival and that there would be these overflowing worship services of a mixture of non-Christians and whoever. All people giving generously. And so to that end, we are going to praise God and thank Him for all that He has done so far in our church. So would you guys stand with me? We will pray and then we will sing some worship here. Father, I praise you for your good works. You have done awesome, amazing things so far through this church. I mean, over 20 years of work on the south side and Carlisle around this area. And so God, we ask now for your power, your might to change our hearts personally. You'd work in our kids' lives, our teenagers. You'd work in our, our neighborhoods, our homes, that, God, you would do a work that, as the psalmist says in Psalm 16, that we would have no other good besides you. We would throw away those idols and other things to come back to you and bring revival and repentance and confession and just do a work here. All to your glory. All to your glory, God. Not for our own, not for how big our church can be or numbers or whatever, but God, for your glory. God, inspire us by your message today to glorify you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.